Welcome to Pottery Visited, episode 45. I'm Tori. And I'm Shay. And today we are jumping into chapter 8 of Prisoner of Azkaban, The Flight of the Fat Lady. Or, as we like to call it, Tea Time with Lupin. Alright, so start, starting off the chapter, we kind of have Harry describing all his classes, and Defense of the Dark Arts with Lupin is like everyone's favorite class, obviously, and we kind of go into all the things Lupin's teaching them. Really cool creatures. Really cool defensive magic. I guess their curriculum is all just like dark creatures, but just like the amount of stuff they're learning compared to the last two books is insane. Like Harry lists like three or four creatures they've learned about since the first class. I'm like, oh my god, like what did they even learn last year? Nothing. And it's only the end of October, right? So it's like they've only had like two months or something. Yeah, it's really interesting to see like how everyone likes him so much because like all the cool stuff he's teaching them and it's uh, generally we get the vibe that he's a really fun teacher and they're doing fun things. Yeah, he's fun. The subject matter's fun. They're actually learning. It's everything you could ever want from a teacher and a class. Yeah, since the only ones that don't like Lupin are the Slytherins, i.e. Malfoy and his friends, and Malfoy kind of insults him for being poorly dressed. And I'm just like... Is that, like, the only reason they don't like him? Like, I feel like he's a good teacher. Like, even if he's, like, not, like, upper class, like, he's still, like, I'm assuming it would appeal to all kids to have a fun class. Yeah. I think, like, part of it is that, like, in this particular year, the only Slytherins you ever hear about are Malfoy and his friends, and Malfoy's just a little shit. Like, I'd like to think that there are non-asshole Slytherins in some of the other years that probably really like Lupin as a teacher because he's good, but... We don't hear about the other age groups and the other years. We really only hear about the people Harry sees in class. Yeah. But I also think, like, someone like Draco really values money. Like, he thinks money is what adds to one's value besides blood status. So for him, like, if someone dresses like they don't have money, they must not have money. Therefore, they're not good at anything or successful or don't have any value as a human being. That's true. So just the standards Draco has for what makes someone a quality person is pretty repulsive. And, like, none of the traits that Lupin has that make him a good person are things the Malfoys value, because they're garbage. Very true. They mention that Draco's like, oh man, Lupin dresses like my old house elf, which is Dobby. He's saying Lupin dresses like Dobby. So now, like, I'm picturing Dobby's, like, ragged, like, burlap onesie situation he wears on Lupin, and it's... That's that's a look. <laughs> wow. Because Dobby couldn't wear real clothes. So it's like, in Draco's mind, there's no difference between having slightly tarnished clothes and just wearing a sack. Same thing. We also kind of get into, uh, Harry says that Dark Arts is like the best class ever. Everyone loves it. But Potions has just gotten worse because Snape's just in like a terrible mood. He knows about the Bogart situation with Neville and he's just become very vindictive and he's taking it out of them, especially Neville. So I'm giving him a Snape sucks point for that. Just, you know, being vindictive to the students, like... If your issues is with, if with Lupin, then t- take it out on Lupin, not children. Yeah, that's fair. One of the things they mention is Harry still not liking divination, but how some of the students really love divination. Like Pavardi and Lavender are going there on their lunch hours to like do predictions. And I got to say, I think I would do that. I think like if it actually worked, like if I was seeing feasible outcomes that my predictions were correct, I would be so into divination and I could see myself going up there at lunch, having a soothing cup of tea, trying to look into the future of something. I'm like, I'm a nervous person. So the idea that I could peek at the future and be like, oh, I'm not going to screw up on my test next week. Good to know would do wonders. I think I would really enjoy it. Yeah, we get, definitely get the vibe that Lavender and Pervardi are like very taken in with Professor Trelawney and they really love divination. Yeah. And it feels like 
with a lot of professors, it's sort of hit or miss if they like you. Like Snape probably dislikes you in general. And like, but I feel like Trelawney's a really easy professor to like please. And like, it'd be really easy to get on her good side and have her like you because she just is very dramatic. She just wants like to bring out reactions in people. So if you just like gasp every once in a while when she makes a prediction, she'll love you. Oh yeah, I feel like she likes the idea of them looking up to her too. Like they're basically just like an audience because she's very much like like um, a theater or an actor like presenting it, how she presents everything and how she teaches. Absolutely. She's a drama teacher. So basically that's what that would be her muggle like alternative. But uh, I feel like she likes having like Lavender and Pervari like look up to her and they're basically like in awe of her. She likes having like that like worship almost. So yeah, I feel like it would be if like you are in awe of like what she does, then she, she'll like consider you. But when people don't take her seriously, that's where she gets pretty short. Yeah. Like we see when Harry and Ron kind of like make things up or like don't listen. If they even pretended to take her seriously, it would have made their lives so much easier in her course going forward. But they just can't even muster the energy to like pretend. The best thing to do would have been to drop the class and take something else that's actually cool that they actually like. But none of them actually like... Harry talks about not liking it. And I'm like, well, why are you still taking it then? Like, I guess you need to take a certain amount of courses, right? Like even in high school, like. Yeah, but they could have switched into a different class. You have to. Yeah. What are the alternatives? Maybe it's an easy class. It's not fun, but it's easy because you can make up your predictions. You can't make up your potion. Muggle studies. That's true. Muggle studies would have been an easy one. Why is Harry not in muggle studies? Yeah, all that. I do think I get the idea of not like uh, transferring because I there were so many classes I took in high school where I was just like, I don't really like this class. But it's it's like once you get into like the first two weeks, you're like, it's too late. Yeah, you're just too lazy. You're like, I can coast through this. I don't want to have to catch up on something. Just suffer. Yeah. You can't pretend with the teacher that you love their course and are so hyped for it. If it's like your third choice and you're like, they know you didn't want to be there to begin with. You're their backup plan. Well, so it's an anxiety of like, yeah, having to like switch class like in the middle of class and like just like reestablish yourself to a whole new thing it's just like oh they can't be bothered you just better suck it up yeah. so we also get some quidditch um woods pumping up the team for this is his last year at school so it's his last year to win the quidditch cup so he's like doing this big pep talk about like how they have the best team ever and he's singling everyone out being like you're so great you're so great and he lets win the cup and he's giving them the motivational speech from like every like football movie we're forced to watch at some point when a teacher is sick at school like you you will succeed because you've been through more. You've struggled through your hardships. You are the best. You've got the heart to win it. Basically, it's remember the Titans slash Rudy or whatever. It's Rudy. Mm-hmm. Rudy. It's probably more Rudy. He really wants this cup before he leaves. Like he makes it a big deal, but he does pump them all up being like, don't worry, Oliver, we're going to win this year. Yeah. They know it's like the most important thing to him. And like, I think it's easy to forget other years when there's serious stuff going on. But like shit hasn't really hit the fan yet this year. So it's easy for the Quidditch team to be like, all right, this year's number one priority is winning that cup for Oliver. Like he needs this win. And then after Harry's been busy with Quidditch and everything, and they have this moment where he comes back up after practice to the common room where Ron and Hermione are, you know, doing their homework, blazing around. And the Hogsmeade weekend's been announced. So Harry's a bit put off by that. But there's this moment where Crookshanks is sitting with Hermione, then all of a sudden attacks Ron's bag right after he says, like, don't like be, watch Crookshanks because Scabbers is in my bag. And I don't want it. Like, and then literally at that moment, Crookshanks like attack. <laughs> and there's this whole scene where basically like um, Crookshanks is chasing Scabbers and then all, everyone in the common room is like trying to catch Crookshanks because Ron's yelling, get that cat, get that cat. And he's like, the cat's like diving under like, 
wardrobes and chairs and stuff and like everyone's like diving for it. And I just think like this the scene I'm imagining in my head would be so funny. Chaos and slapstick comedy. Yeah. Yeah. Especially because like cats are just like basically like liquid. Like if you ever try to catch a cat to like put in a carrier or something, the, the way that they like move is like basically like they're liquefied. Yeah. They they squirm and they worm and they're not as big as you think they are. So you think you're holding them and it's Ron's very uh, peeved off by this once he, you know, gets Crookshanks, like, is Hermione gets Crookshanks and he has scabbers. And I do kind of get it, but, like, I wonder if he's more mad about, like, just the fact that this happened and he's worried about something happening to scabbers or it's more Hermione not taking it seriously because we kind of get the, like, especially in this chapter that Hermione is a pet owner, but she's not, she, and she kind of isn't taking responsibility for what her cat's doing. Like, we know that obviously scabbers is not scabbers and it's Peter Pettigrew and probably deserves to be chased by Crookshanks. Yeah, but in without that information. It's that's it's just that Hermione got a pet that's kind of terrorizing Ron's pet and he's being like, hey, like control your pet, please. My pet's sick. Can you like, you know, keep an eye on it, make sure it doesn't do anything? He's old and he's sick and I would rather him not be dead. <laughs> that's fair. But yeah, I do feel like He's just, like, really peeved off with Hermione. And, like, Hermione, like, usually is the one that's crossed with Ron because Ron is doing something that's not tactful. But, like, I feel like Ron's being pretty straightforward here. Like, you know, take responsibility for your cat. And she's just, like, not. I absolutely agree. Yeah. Not only, like, train your pets. You know what I mean? Like, if you if, if you, someone's pet's minding their own business and your pet decides to go after them and be hostile, it's it the responsibility falls on the owner of the pet. Absolutely. And then for Hermione to just be like oh whatever just cats being cats it's like yes that is the instinct of cats and therefore it is the responsibility of cat owners to keep an eye on them and not let that happen like I've known people who have pet mice or pet rats and like they're cute and you love them like they're your pet they're your friend and like an animal eating them or almost eating them is horrible and stressful and not cool and like I feel really bad for Ron and I wish Hermione would take it a bit more seriously. Yeah, I feel like first reading this, I felt more for Hermione because I just identified with her. But like having a pet now, being a pet owner, like that's something you do take seriously. Like you love your pets and like to you, like they are the light of your life and they can do no wrong. But like it is a responsibility when you have like other people's pets around to be like... To care about them. You know, like you're responsible for that pet. Like if anything happens, it's on you. And I feel like... We talked about this before when Hermione got correction. So it's a lot of responsibility for like a 13 year old to like be the sole responsible person for an animal. Yeah, it really is. Especially like a rat, like Ron takes care of the rat and whatever. But like a cat is actually like people think that cats are um, not like a lot of work, but they are not as much as dogs, I don't think. But like, yeah, because you don't have to take them for walks necessarily, but yeah. But it's still a lot of work and responsibility, and I feel like Hermione's, like, I don't know what Hermione's kind of thinking, but, like, if she's not, why she's not taking it seriously, but, like, this is kind of, like, a big deal. It's especially weird because Hermione's such a responsible character, but it's, like, this is the part where she kind of falls short, and she, like, obviously loves this cat and stuff, but she doesn't really see things from Ron's perspective. Absolutely. I mean, it's definitely, like... It makes sense because it's very much how it would be if they had a bunch of 13-year-olds having their own pets with no parents around to supervise or, like, no responsible adult who can be like, hey, time to walk your dog. Don't forget to train your cat somewhat. I don't know if you train cats. I don't have one. But, like, it, it definitely is, like, this is the proof that every parent can show their young child when they're like, I want a cat. And the parent's like, you're not ready to take care of a cat. Hermione couldn't even do it well. And Hermione Granger is the best. So... Maybe when you're 16. (laughs) 
So outside the, the Transfiguration class, we also find out that we see like Lavender like really upset and provided comforting her. And it turns out that her pet rabbit died and she got the news today. Yeah, so Lavender's going through it and Pavardi's comforting her and uh and and Lavender's thinking that because her pet bunny who she loves is dead and Trelawney's prediction for her was that the thing she was dreading would come to happen, she thinks, "Oh, it's my rabbit's death." And Hermione, being a very logical person and also very keen to disprove divination, is saying, well, that can't be the truth if it wasn't something you were actively dreading and if it also didn't happen on the specific date that Trelawney said it would happen. She got the news today, which is a, which would be the 16th, but Hermione's like, oh, well, it would have happened before the 16th. Exactly. So the news she was dreading, the thing she was dreading coming to pass did not happen on this date and also it wasn't something she was dreading. So I just feel like... This is something Hermione does where people are having, you know, like, emotional things happen to them and her way to comfort them is to explain the logic behind it. Yeah. It's like, oh, you don't need to be upset because logically it wouldn't it wouldn't be this, like, prediction because of this. And then her Lavender is literally crying because her baby rabbit died. Yeah, she's like, I love my pet. Shut up. I don't care what you have to say. She's just like, I don't care if it's a prediction or not. I believe it. And also my rabbit's dead. And I think this is a really interesting moment because Ron wants to, like, be snarky to Hermione because he's mad at her. So he says, oh, don't, don't, you know, don't take what she says to heart, Lavender. Hermione doesn't value other people's pets. And like, in that moment, he's saying the thing to attack Hermione, not to defend Lavender. But I think maybe Lavender saw that happen and thought, Ron Weasley's like defending me by standing up to his best friend. And I think there's a chance this is like one of the earliest moments where she might have started to have a crush on Ron Weasley. You know, because she's like, look at him standing up for me, you know, valuing how I feel. Maybe. I could think it, it's something that impacted her decision. But so I feel like I don't think her crush really happened until sixth year, because I feel like at that point, Ron really came into his own in sixth year. Like he's on the Quidditch team. But we don't know, right? She might have had a crush on him the whole time. I mean, like he's awkward and goofy and like people like that. And, like, it would also make sense why she likes him so much, like, if it had built up over time, kind of. Because we don't get anything from Lavender until she's now and then when she's dating Ron. So, like, I like to think that, like, this is a moment where... Well, I feel like if she liked him, she would have went to the Ubal with him. Because Harry asked uh, Lavender to go to the Ubal with Ron, and she said no because she's already going with someone. But I feel like if she really liked him, she would have been like, oh, I'm going to go with Ron instead. I don't know. Maybe she's responsible and she's not going to break up with or cancel a plan with someone. I don't know. I just like to think that, like, this is a moment that, like, because it's interesting that it could very easily be interpreted as Ron defending Lavender rather than Ron attacking Hermione. And certainly something she can look back on when she's dating Ron and kind of jealous of his friendship with Hermione and be like, well, he chose me then. <laughs> He's on my side. Well, moving into some Hogsmeade discussion, McGonagall's reminding them all to hand in their permission forms to go to Hogsmeade on Halloween, and Neville's like, I think I lost mine, but his grand literally mailed his form to McGonagall directly, which I think is just really smart. I mean, she knows him well. You gotta respect that she knows him. It's nice to know there's someone that gets Neville, you know? He may have his moments where his grand doesn't fully appreciate him, but she knows who he is a little bit. <laughs> I feel like it was it's done in good faith, because she wants Neville to go, obviously. And uh, we have this whole moment where... Ron and Hermione are kind of fighting, so Ron's been trying to get tell, telling Harry, oh, you should just ask McGonagall for permission. She'll give it to you. And Hermione's like, actually, I don't think that's going to work. But because he's mad he's at Hermione, he's just like, go do it. So Harry goes and he asks McGonagall, and obviously she's like, nope, that's against the rules. I'm not your mother, Harry. 
One of Ron's other clever options is to have Harry, like, have the note forge, someone forge his Uncle Vernon's signature. And they ask Dean Thomas because he has good pen, particularly good with a quill is what they say. And I'm like, having good penmanship doesn't necessarily mean you can forge the signature of someone you've never seen. Like, are they just going to, like, be like, okay, Dean, the name is Vernon and write it the way you think you would if you were an angry muggle? Like, yeah, that's what I'm assuming. Because I don't think Harry has like a copy of anything Vernon signed. But I'm like, do they even verify, like, for like Muggleborns, would they even verify the parent signature? I mean, I'd like to think that like they have the cheap, the parent signatures on file somewhere at Hogwarts just to check if they distrust it. Would they have the Dursleys on file? I mean, like, a resp- okay, you're right. Hogwarts wouldn't. A responsible school. Yeah, I mean, I'm just thinking it's Hogwarts. Like, in any other situation, be like, obviously they would like check them. But it's Hogwarts, so I'm just like, I don't think like they check them. So I'm assuming that like Dean was just going to make up a signature because he's the best, like he has the neatest handwriting. Because I think if they're writing in cursive, like I feel like most kids their age are pretty messy. And I feel like it would look more adult if Dean's like really good at like penmanship and drawing. It probably looked more like an adult was writing it rather than a child. Yeah, I'm just trying to imagine how good because he's 13. I'm like picturing like a crayon and instead of writing like Vernon Dursley he's like Harry's uncle <laughs> like in blue crayon he's like that'll that'll catch <laughs> Dean practices his calligraphy every night and it's gonna look like uh, some old-timey like scroll testament from like the Victorian period indeed it's an artifact from ancient potters from the beginning of time he's got <laughs> have you ever forged your parents signature on something when you were in school because I did <laughs> I don't think but there was a reason for it, okay? Like, I got perfect in the spelling test, but I still need to get it signed. And because I didn't get it signed, I had to stay in for recess. But you got perfect. Yeah, it's like, like my parents know I got perfect, but like, my mom forgot to sign my identity. Mm-hmm. She's busy. But I didn't want to get in trouble again. So I copied her signature from like the day before. And then by, by my mom, when she signed it for the next day, she noticed. And she's like, don't do that. That's illegal. Yeah. Harry, Harry was so dumb. He's like, he asked McGonagall for permission before he got Dean to potentially forge Vernon's signature. I'm like, you should have done that first. Yeah. Another sign that he's not a Slytherin. <laughs> you never reveal your hand until you're all out of options. Percy's trying to comfort Harry, and he's like, oh, it's not that great. I mean, this part's great, and that part's always worth it. And actually, this part's actually pretty great. I'm like, no, Percy, you're not helping. Freaking Percy. Yeah, but I really feel bad for Harry just missing out, especially because he's the only one. I feel like everyone's had like a time where like they're missing out on something like really big that everyone's talking about and like it's just like he feels so like isolated and everything yeah it sucks he's isolated enough as the chosen one as the orphan as harry potter you know yeah exactly it sucks but also there's a serial killer after him so like yeah and harry's not thinking about that he's like he's thinking of like i'm missing out on the social activity i do get it because like although ron hermione are trying to be accommodating to him but, like, he still knows that they're going to have fun and everyone's st- everyone's just talking about how much fun they're going to have. And he's like, well, I can't, I can't be a part of it. Yeah, it really is. It sucks. But they could have, like, I don't know. I feel like the school should have done, like, someone who cared about Harry should have planned something interesting for him to get up to while the other kids were, like, doing... I mean, like, Lupin ends up basically filling that role. But it would have been nice if someone had been like, but Harry, we... Like, Hagrid could be like, oh, I need help with this thing. This will be the perfect opportunity. Hagrid's too uh, sad. As I think we overlooked the caramagical creature stuff, but all Hagrid's doing is having them feed flubberworms. Oh, yeah. Because he lost his confidence. So I think Hagrid's kind of depressed and probably drinking in his cabin. You're right. And Hagrid's day drinking. He doesn't have time to worry about Harry Potter. Probably. He's probably the only one who doesn't have time to worry about Harry Potter. Everyone else is very worried about Harry Potter. 
And Dumbledore wants Harry to be isolated so he can manipulate him. But as we said about Lupin, uh, Harry's just walking around the castle and Lupin sees him. And Lupin's just so nice and invites him in for tea. And I'm like, this guy. Yeah, he's kind of the best. And even like he's talking about Snape and he's saying like when it comes to the potion and he's like, you know, I'm really lucky to work with Snape because he can brew this potion and not everyone could or would. And like... For Remus, knowing Snape hates him and is rude to him whenever possible and despises his existence, to say that, it's such a, like, Lupin is clearly the bigger man in that situation. He's the better person. He's more understanding. Also, so, like, Lupin's so, like, he's grown up and he has kind of left that part behind. But it's like kind of what you said in the last episode that, like, Snape still constantly thinks about Lupin and, like, the Marauders and those people, but they don't think about him. Yeah. And it's just like he just can't let go. I think right before Snape comes in, um, Harry's just like feeling weird about about Lupin because he thinks that Lupin thinks he's a coward because obviously he stopped him from finding the Dementor in class and like the thing with the Dementor on the train. And I'm just like, why is Harry so just like obsessed about like how Lupin views him? Yeah, he's a weirdo. Just I mean, maybe he's just kind of just like a normal thirteen-year-old boy thing, like not wanting to appear weak in front of like an authority figure. But yeah, Harry is like really like thinking about this. Yeah. I also think it's really cool when uh, Snape comes in is that like when Snape comes in, he's seeing Lupin with Harry, who looks like James. So it's kind of like walking into like an old school memory. Yeah, he's probably like, oh, God, these assholes. Yeah, (laughs) because Harry's just like wondering, because like he says that Snape's eyes linger on him. So I think that's probably what Snape's like thinking of right now. Yeah, he's walked into a hundred rooms that have those two people's faces looking back at him and he's traumatized he's like oh oh just before that harry asks lupin why he wasn't allowed to fight the bogart and lupin literally says like harry you idiot i thought the bogart would be lord voldemort yeah harry is an idiot is the answer harry doesn't understand things because he's a bit of an idiot i do like how lupin handles it though because harry's just like oh i i was thinking about voldemort but like i thought about the dementor and lupin's like you know it's very mature and he's just kind of like you know kind of building harry up being just like a really great uh, mentor slash teacher. Yeah, he's the best. I love Lupin. And then Harry's like, uh, he's trying to give Lupin hints not to drink this potion that uh, Snape gave him, even though Lupin's like, oh, Snape's so great. Yeah, Harry's like, he's definitely poisoning you, Lupin. Like, like I'm pretty sure you shouldn't take that. I definitely think it's poison. Wouldn't take it myself. Wouldn't recommend to a friend. Yeah, he wants to say that it's poison. But he's like, you know, Snape really wants a dark arts job. Some say he'd do anything to get it. And Lupin's just like, oh. He really fancies making sneaky evil potions, you know. <laughs> Things like Lupin knows Snape. Like, they went to school together. So I feel like Harry's just trying to out Snape as being evil. But Lupin's just kind of like, it's kind of funny seeing it from like a kid's perspective. Because he probably knows all the things the kids say about Snape and stuff, overhearing stuff. So he's, he's just... Oh, for sure. He probably thinks them himself. He just doesn't say them out loud because Lupin is a responsible adult. Yeah, well, we talked about last episode that Lupin is a really big troll, especially to Snape. So he's just kind of like nodding his head being like, yeah, interesting. But he still drinks the potion, obviously. He's enjoying Snape's suffering, but he isn't causing it directly, you know? No, he's still being professional. He's a passive guy. He's pretty chill. Yeah. But Ron and Hermione come back from Hogsmeade and like you can obviously tell they had a great time and it's just really interesting the things they bring up because the first thing Hermione tells Harry is about the post office and and there she's talking about how it's color coded and it's just very Hermione. It is. by the, 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 the mailing system and how it's organized and then Ron is going off about like all the Honeyduke sweets they got and just like the sweet shop and about the three broomsticks and stuff. So it's just very, it's very cool to kind of get this little bit of Hogsmeade before actually being there with Harry. Yeah. 
It is nice. And like, it, it, it is interesting how the things they talk about match themselves. I'm like, it's not like Hermione even thinks, what would Harry be keen to hear about? She's like, it's the owls. It's the color coding organization. The best. I think when you go somewhere, when you go somewhere like that, it's like you, you tell people the things that you the things that are first coming to your head, yeah. the things you enjoyed. Like if I go to like a theme park or I went on a vacation somewhere, I'm going to tell you all about the things that the things I think about, which are the things that I like really enjoyed. Yeah. I also think though, that's almost a better opening because Harry's probably less excited about the post office. So like, it's almost like Hermione's accidentally doing what Percy was trying to do beforehand. Like you should feel less bad because the most exciting thing you missed out on was color coded organizational systems at the post office. And there's maybe a moment where Harry's like, okay, well, I didn't really need to see that part. So maybe it's fine. It's like, he's like, oh, Hogsmeade sounds boring. But then they kind of talk about the more interesting things like, you know, the candy that they brought, brought him back and the shrieking shack and the three broomsticks and butterbeer and stuff like that. So, and then we kind of get the opening into the Halloween feast. I like to think there's more jacket potatoes. We know Harry loves a jacket potato. Good old jacket potatoes. Don't want to derail the conversation back to that anymore. But it's a priority. Are there jacket potatoes? Does Harry get one of the jacket potatoes? Are they delicious? Now that we know what my jacket potatoes are. <laughs> now that we're experts on jacket potatoes. But you had this note here about the ghosts doing like a formation gliding yeah <laughs> um it says that the ghosts were responsible for entertainment and they were doing formation gliding which sounds cool but i sort of pictured like synchronized skating or synchronized swimming where like some of them go this way some of them just go that way the ones in the front spin while the ones in the back flip and like super majestic glorious ghost entertainment i wonder when they were made to be in the entertainment because the last book that was Nick's um, death day party. So all the ghosts were at that instead of the feast. And Halloween was when the troll came in. So we don't kind of get much about like the actual feast because we're always derailed. But this is the first time we're kind of at the feast. And I'm wondering if this is like a new thing where like the ghosts are going to provide entertainment. Yeah, I like it. I think it's good. Seems pretty cool. Yeah, Nick also reenacts his beheading and his death, which is also kind of <laughs> a bit morbid, but you know. Dramatic, but also a little traumatizing, maybe? I mean, if he takes it lightly, they can take it lightly. He's giving them permission to laugh at it or to ooh and all. Yeah, but it, it's, it sounds like a really great feast. Like, this is, it's kind of weird it being like the first time we're actually there at the feast. Like, the whole time, nothing weird happened. But something weird does happen after the feast, of course, as Halloween in the Harry Potter series, always something happening. It's a very special time of year where all the spookies and the ghosties and the bad guys come out to do things that are significant we have a bit of like a twist kind of like cliffhanger ending and so everyone all the governors are going up to their tower to find that there's like a big crowd and percy comes through and he's calling for dumbledore because the fat lady's gone from her portrait and there are huge like slashes in her frame so someone's obviously tried to break in someone's attacked a painting that is destruction of property and that is a crime and also, because paintings are sentient, it's assault, I think. I would love to know what legal system protects art. Could she have him charged? <laughs> She'd be like a witness. Can she go to court? I mean, if they carry the frame, I guess. Percy calls for Dumbledore, and then he's just basically there. There, yeah. He's like, go get Dumbledore. And then Dumbledore's like, Dumbledore's already here. And I'm like, how did he know is my question. Like, does he have like a sensors around Hogwarts that like, ooh, if students are gathered in one area for too long and there's a certain amount of nervous energy, he like gets a ping or like a 
an alarm goes off. Because, like, it happens so quickly. Like, to me, if Percy's just getting there now, at most this happened 10 minutes ago. Well, there must have been a crowd there before, after the feast ends. So maybe the people are seeing, like, there's a big holdup on, like, the staircase. And then the teachers are kind of like, what's going on? And then Dumbledore is just kind of, like, on his way there. I guess. But I think it's mystical. I think... It's not just word of mouth, because I think it happened pretty quick. I think Dumbledore has some sort of secret monitoring systems at Hog magical, not technological, monitoring systems, where he can, like, sense their nervous energy. And he's like, there's a horde of angry students gathered in the hallway. Something is... Sounds like Dumbledore. But also, like, how embarrassing for the Dementors and Dumbledore and the castle to have had the number one big bad they're trying to keep out this year just waltz right in. Like... How did that happen? And why wasn't Lupin, who knows the same secret passages that Sirius knows, like putting some watches in place or guarding the passageways? Well, we do know that Lupin does want to tell Dumbledore, but he's really ashamed of it. And also he's worried about how it will impact his life since we know that he really struggled before coming to Hogwarts. But he feels bad because Dumbledore kind of like gave him this opportunity as a kid to go to school. And he feels like he kind of like... He, he didn't respect it, and he feels guilty about becoming, about his friends becoming an Animagi. And then with, with Sirius, he feels bad about, like, not telling Dumbledore, but he doesn't want to risk, like, his new opportunity here. And so he kind of bows with himself if, if he should take it, but he does admit that he was he was a, too much of a coward to admit it to Dumbledore. And he kept trying, just kind of hoping that it wasn't Sirius Black. Yeah, but ugh, I really think... He should have, I know Lupin doesn't want to tell Dumbledore all the secrets he has and all the passageways he knows, but like, then Lupin should have taken a bit of responsibility and like left some sort of watching there. He should have put some enchantments or something there to look out for those passageways. Because if he's not going to tell other people about them, he's responsible for them. Yeah, he just kind of stuck his head in the stand. We also know that at Snape at this point is telling like uh, Dumbledore, like, oh, Lupin definitely let him in, so... I find it interesting, though, that when um, Dumbledore's there and he's like, where's the fat lady? We need to find her. And Peeves comes up and he's kind of like being his normal Peeves self and goofing off being like, oh, she's like, run away. But as soon as Dumbledore says, oh, what, where is she, Peeves? Like he talks to him directly. Peeves kind of shifts like his tone and he's like, oh, she's up on the fourth floor, headmaster, sir. He's just very like unPeeves like so it's interesting, like, the way, because we see how Peeves acts with teachers and how he acted with Lupin and with students. So it's weird that he definitely treats Dumbledore very, um, with as much respect as he can as Peeves. Yeah, I think it has to do with the fact that Dumbledore's the one who can determine if he needs to be expelled from Hogwarts forever. Yeah, he knows Filch wants him out and has asked Dumbledore to kick him out and Dumbledore won't. So he knows the only reason he's still there is because of Dumbledore. Yeah, so he owes Dumbledore. And also just, like, I guess... I don't like Dumbledore, but I, he commands respect. He's old, he's wise, he's, you know. So I feel like even those who aren't necessarily prone to being respectful are more likely to get in line when he's there. He's very authoritative. Yeah, well, there's still, like, people like that don't respect authority. Like, there's still some kind of, like, we're, like, raised to respect authority. So I feel like even if you don't respect Dumbledore, it's like he's still kind of subconsciously respect, like, the authority order. Like, he is, like, the headmaster of the school. He's in charge of the school. Yeah. And he's intimidating in my mind. Like, I can see, I mean, I always think about, like, goofy, dumb, manipulative Dumbledore, but I can see he's this big, tall, bearded, wise, old guy. And I can see how that's very intimidating, especially to, like, a ghost. So we find out with the cliffhanger ending that, um, according to Peeves, Sirius Black tried to break into Gryffindor Tower. And that's why uh, the fat lady fled, because he tried to slash her up. (laughs) 
But yeah, so our first kind of big cliffhanger and kind of leading into the pl- more of the plot of this book where we kind of seeing more serious Black come into kind of Harry's world before he's just kind of like this bad guy figure that's kind of like on like the outskirts. He's talked about, but nothing really happens. But this is the first time things are actually happening. It's always Halloween. Do you have any closing remarks for this chapter? Do I have clothes? I would love to have tea with Lupin. I think it would be fun. And I would also love it if Snape showed up because I would also love to have tea with Snape. Of course you would. Um, I don't know if both of them at the same time is my ideal tea company, but I think it would be fun either way <laughs> for me personally. I think we should have tea and it be a therapy session between Lupin and Snape. <laughs> well, just honestly, I have this very unhelpful BA in psychology. We could sit down and talk about it. You know, I think they could both grow as people. Yeah, thanks for listening to this episode of Pod Revisited, and we'll be back next time to discuss Chapter 9, Grim Defeat. And if you like this episode, make sure you're following us on Spotify or our podcast, wherever you listen to us, and also follow us on social media at Pod Revisited. And if you would like to send us any messages about any episodes or theories or anything, you can email us at podrevisitedpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll see you guys in the next one. Bye.